Good evening and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm John Tarleton, editor in chief of the Independent New York City's progressive newspaper and website. You can find our latest print edition across the city in our red and white news boxes on street corners in public libraries, bookstores, independent cafes, and other venues. You can also find our latest coverage online at independent.org, I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T dot O-R-G. I'm joined today by my co-host, Amber Gagarian. Hi, John. It's great to be here with you and all of our listeners on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. We have another amazing show in store for today. In the first half of the show, we're going to focus on the continuing resurgence of labor unions and some of the latest news on big strikes that are going on. We'll hear from a WGA strike captain about the big victory for Hollywood screenwriters following a 148-day strike. And we'll speak uh, also in the first half of the show with labor historian Tony Gilpin about the historic auto workers strike now in its third week with workers out on strike in more than 20 states. In the second half of the show, Socialist State Assembly member Zohan Mondami will join us to talk about the MTA's experiment with free bus fares on select bus routes in the five boroughs, an initiative he pushed for in Albany last spring in Albany last spring. Uh, but first, Samba, let's talk for a minute about the resurgent labor movement. We had a big victory last week. That's right, John. Negotiators for the Writers Guild of America and the big Hollywood studios reached a tentative contract agreement that ended the screenwriter strike after 148 days. The contract agreement was unanimously approved by the WGA Executive Council and is now being voted on by the union's 11,000 members, most of whom are based in Los Angeles and New York City. If approved, the new contract will earn writers $233 million more per year than their previous agreement, according to Guild estimates, nearly tripling the offer that the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers first made. The contract includes a new viewership-based streaming residual and staffing and duration minimums for all filmed programs, including minimums and guarantees for streaming comedy variety series, which were not covered before. It also provides for strict guardrails on the use of artificial intelligence in the writing process. This is JT Allen, who I spoke with yesterday. He is a WGA strike captain in L.A. at Warner Brothers Studios, or rather he was at Warner Brothers Studio while the picket was going on. And he said that organization among strike captains and other organizers was a very key aspect in triumphing uh, a strong strike. So let's listen to him, JT Allen of WGA. We were able to hold out largely, actually there's three things I think. I think there was a great, I mean, just our solidarity, uh, our, our, the goals of our, uh, of the WGA were really clearly stated at the beginning of the strike. Uh, everybody realized the goals were really serious. Uh, and th- these were sort of the things that, and we called this a generational strike, uh, in the sense that there were things we needed to sort of keep, keep Hollywood going, honestly. And it were some issues, were so important that that we really felt if we didn't win this strike, that Hollywood would become like this gig economy, and it would actually destroy the community of all these various uh, unions. And so we had clear goals. We had a great organization of the Writers Guild and the Captain System, and we were totally motivated by the fact that this was like a you know a win or die situation. Quite frankly, uh, we had to win this strike. We all felt that from the beginning. 
we had the support from all kinds of people, all of the different trade unions, from the grips of the electricians, the sound, the musicians, uh, special effects people, all supported us and came out to the line to actually picket with us, uh, including like the teachers union and, and, and the hotel workers and teamsters and stuff like that. I mean, it was pretty amazing. And then now, from the perspective of anyone that's held out that long, what did it feel like to win? I mean, to win, to, to, to you know, really win most of the contract demands. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it was, it, I can't even describe it. The elation was was amazing. I mean, honestly, you know, it, it, I don't know whether I've ever had that exact same feeling again. It was, it was like winning a war almost. It just went like, oh, my gosh, we survived. I mean, obviously, there's going to be a big scramble to get back to work for everybody. And uh, in terms of the enforcement, that part, you know, the Guild has, uh, as as an organization, is very good at enforcing things like residual collection. And so they'll, administratively, they'll figure out a way to enforce all the new stuff as well. And it's it's almost a, a joke, uh, you know, that you don't want to get the wrath of the WGA. They're scary. You know? <laughs> anyway, we still need to vote. I mean, in theory, people could vote against it and, and they'd go back negotiating. But, no, the, the voting actually starts today, Monday till next Monday, and I will vote uh, today, uh, right after I get up the phone call, actually. Yeah, yeah. And I think we'll, I, I'm pretty sure, not just pretty sure, I'm positive uh, that we will ratify it by, by very high upper 90s level. That was J.P. Allen, a Writers Guild of America strike captain, talking yesterday about his union's victory following a 148-day strike and what happens now. Right. That's an amazing accomplishment. Uh, and just to, uh, for a sense of the momentum we're seeing in the labor movement, uh, I was on the National Labor Relations Board website, uh, yes, last night and poking around. And I saw that, uh, yesterday alone, there were, uh, union, uh, 30 different union election filings for October, uh, 2nd, 2023. Now, you don't get that many on every day, but, uh, it was really striking. I mean, these were in, venues across the country with uh, workforces of anywhere from five to a thousand people. Uh, I've never a couple of Starbucks uh, uh, coffee shops, but also uh, several places where uh, postal service employees were seeking to unionize uh, some security guards, uh, uh, several hospitals, uh, uh, nurses and other hospital employees, uh, just a, a wide array of people. And, um, uh, and, and you know we've seen we saw the the mobilization with the Teamsters earlier this summer, and they won a big contract. And excited to hear more about the uh, UAW uh, uh, strike that we're going to talk about uh, more with our next guest. But Amba, uh, you in fact uh, visited a United Auto Workers picket line yesterday in Tapan, New York, where members of UAW Local 3039. Uh, have been on strike for uh, the past 10 days or so outside a uh, Chrysler uh, parts distribution center. Right, exactly. Uh, myself and a couple other members of members of the Indy were out there uh, talking to the workers. There were a few of them out there. They've been doing a 24 seven picket line. So, and they have constant shifts of um, a handful of guys uh, and they're there all the time. They were there in the rain on Friday. And I think, you know, um, the thing that stood out the most to me, of course, was talking to a worker who said that when he got the job 30 years ago, he got the job because his mom and his uncle worked in the factory. And that was the only way you could in the part in the in the parts center. It's what's it's not really a factory. And that's the only way that you could get a job was by knowing somebody. And now from out of the 80 to 85 workers they have, they can they, they seem to always have around 10 positions filled because uh, back then. 
it was a good paying job compared to the prices. And now you can get the same pay at McDonald's where you're not forced to work overnight because you're a new worker. Um, in addition, they spoke to some condition concerns within the warehouse, um, like terrible leaks every time it rains, which um, are, I think, difficult for them to wrap their heads around considering the uh, financial gain of, of the of Chrysler. Right. These companies uh, are certainly making a lot of money, which is part of what's inspired this strike. People uh, want their their fair share of the wealth they're creating. Absolutely. So uh, now we're going to move on to our first guest. On September 15th, thousands of auto workers, uh, like the guys I spoke to yesterday, at Ford, GM, and Stellantis walked out on strike, marking the beginning of what the United Auto Workers Union is calling its stand-up strike, citing over a decade of concessionary contracts that resulted in minimum to no wage increases. The UAW's recently elected national leadership, headed by President Sean Fain, organized a staggered, or what they're calling a targeted strike, where instead of having all workers walk off, walk off the job at once, plants are striking in a domino effect. When the strike began on September 15th, around 13,000 workers walked out of three auto plants in Michigan, Missouri, and Ohio. Then on September 22nd, a week later, UAW President Fain announced 38 new strike locations targeting GM and Stellantis, saying all parts distribution locations for the two companies at cities across 20 U.S. states, including that one in Tippan, Rockland County. Ford was actually excluded at that time due to substantial progress at the bargaining table. Then on Friday, an additional 7,000 workers from Ford, from a Ford assembly plant in Chicago and a general, general motors facility in Lansing, Michigan hit the picket line as well, bringing the total number of striking workers up to 25,000. But this still leaves around 120,000 auto workers at the ready. So here to discuss the strike is labor historian Tony Gilpin. Gilpin comes from a proud UAW family and is the author of The Long Deep Grudge, a story of big capital, radical labor, and class war in the American heartland. Dr. Tony Gilpin, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks, John and Amba, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Uh, welcome to WBAI. So first, I, I want to have you explain what the central demands of the union are because you have the deep history with it. So in this strike, what, what are the central issues? Um, well, I think John said earlier um, that uh, he sort of hit the nail on the head when he said um, that what these workers are looking for is a greater share of what they are owed. That's the sort of uh, umbrella um, uh, under which all their demands fall. Um, but, you know, they do have specific demands, the first of which um, is a big wage increase, and that Wage increase is that desire for that wage increase is driven by the simmering anger that I think all workers have been feeling for um, quite some time now about uh, the inequality we're experiencing in this country, the enormous um, corporate, um, the CEO salaries, the enormous corporate profits. Um, and uh, the, I mean, the big three just in the first half, the big three automakers just in the first half of this year uh, have made $21 billion. And yet, of course, they're, they're telling their workers that they can't afford um, decent wage increases. So the UAW advanced uh, an aggressive 40% 
uh, wage increase demand, um, but they're also seeking, um, and this is the other um, important element, to restore much of what has been, what they had lost um, in the concessionary contracts that have been imposed since the Great Recession of 2008, and, and frankly, even before that. So they're looking for um, a restoration of cost of living uh, increases, which used to be standard issue in union contracts and which um, with uh, inflationary pressures now are um, uh, really important to um, for workers to get, because obviously if you get a wage increase that's offset um, by inflation, then it really doesn't um, help you that much. Um, they're also seeking uh, to end the insidious tiered wage system where workers who are hired later are paid less and get um, uh, inferior benefits um, to workers who had been hired in, in decades before. I mean, ending those tiers, which have spread across um, uh, industry and into other um, corporate circles, um, is critical because it violates a key union precept to equal pay for equal work. Um, and it undermines solidarity among a workforce because different workers within a workplace will then have different interests, different um, needs. And, you know, the UAW is also, so those are the, you know, sort of big economic demands that the union is seeking. They're also um, looking for some things that speak to the viability of the UAW itself, to the viability of union um, representation. So they're looking for the right to strike over plant closures that have been so devastating to so many uh, communities in the Midwest and elsewhere. They're looking for um, uh, the extension of union representation at the new generation of electric um, vehicle plants that are being opened by these companies. Um, they've also advanced a very bold um, demand for 30 um, uh, hours pay for 40 hours work. And uh, taken together, these demands seek not just to compensate auto workers more fairly, they also are looking to make the workplace a more humane setting, and they're also looking to challenge management's heretofore unfettered right to determine how work is done, how fast it will be performed, and whether in the case of plant closings and representation at the new um, electric vehicle plants, whether these will be decent jobs at all. Um, so settling on the wage question, I think, will be the easy part. Um, these other issues related to management control um, will be where the real struggle is going to take place. And what is the theory behind the staggered strike approach that they're taking, uh, what they're calling this targeted approach? How are different groups like workers, companies, and the public responding to it. Well, and, um, and yeah, and what's the theory behind it? I know I said that, but. right, right. Um, I mean, first of all, it's a, a few things. First of all, this is an unprecedented uh, action. There, the UAW has never gone on strike against all three auto big auto companies at once, um, and this notion of striking only a few plants and being secretive about which plants they're going to strike and gradually increasing the number of workers on strike. Um, those are new tactics that the union has not engaged in before. It's also sort of introducing to the public, uh, to the labor movement and to workers in general, uh, the fact that this is a new UAW. This is a bold, aggressive, innovative 
UAW, which has not been the case for uh, many decades. And the strategy, um, at least in theory, offers the advantage of preserving union resources. The union gives um, the UAW provides strike benefits for striking workers. Um, if all of its members at the big three were on strike at once, that would tax that strike fund pretty quickly. So this um, allows them to conserve their resources. It also keeps management guessing, keeps them off guard about where the strike is going and how many workers are going to be involved in it. And it also offers the opportunity to engage and energize a rank and file uh, that hasn't been particularly um, involved in union activity in all kinds of new ways. So, and to introduce what is a very new union leadership to this rank and file. So that's the theory, I think, behind um, this very new strategy. It certainly captured a lot of media attention, which is another um, important element of um, this strike. And, uh, you know, we have to wait and see ultimately uh, how successful it's going to be. But um, it is uh, something that has certainly galvanized a lot of attention and I think is probably um, exciting the rank and file and all kind of the union in all kinds of new ways. Right. I mean, these uh, weekly uh, Friday 10 a.m. announcements of uh, where the next strikes are going to happen. Uh, I mean, it's become a bit of a, a, a media spectacle. It's, mm-hmm. I don't know, it's almost like a, a sports contest. You know, where's the next, uh, you know, uh, playoff game going to be or something? And, uh, so yeah, it seems to be working, uh, in, in that sense pretty well. But I want to ask you, um, about the UAW's recent history, uh, up to this point, um, including the uh, 2019, uh, corruption scandal. In the ensuing democratization of the union's national voting process, uh, the UAW uh, was controlled by something called the Administration Caucus, uh, going back at least to the 1940s. Really, um, you know, this very top-down operation. Can you kind of talk about how the UAW uh, sort of calcified over the years, and and what sort of finally uh, shook things loose in the last few years? Right. I am mentioned that um, I grew up in a UAW family. My father was a, a UAW staff member um, and earlier had been with a union that organized the Farm Equipment Workers Union, which is uh, which was a, a radical alternative to the UAW and the subject of the book that Amba mentioned that I wrote. Um, so I would say that for Longtime UAW watchers or members or family members who have, uh, who have a long, uh, memory of the UAW. Um, what's happening right now with this strike and in the UAW is almost unthinkable, frankly. Um, uh, the union had been so mired in corruption and complacency, uh, and the top leadership of the union had for so many decades been committed to an ethos of labor management cooperation, had long ago abandoned any display of militancy. But because, uh, John, as you mentioned, the this sort of um, uh, complete control exercised by that top leadership through this sort of Byzantine uh, governance structure of the UAW, it seemed impossible to challenge that, to um, to uh, ever shake things up within the UAW. Um and so I'm, uh, you know, even though I've, I, as I said, I've been around the UAW all my life, this is like a, an exciting and, and really surprising development, but I should, but I should. You've got a huge smile on your face as you talk about this. 
Well, I and I but as a historian, I should I should have known that this is is was was possible because there's sort of two things that that are true within labor history or many things. But two of the things that are true within labor history is that, you know, organizers, even when they're faced with what seemed like insurmountable obstacles engaged in what 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 feel like pointless, isolated struggles are sending out you know, ripples that um, can have uh, unforeseen effects years or, or decades later. Um, and that's, you know, to switch metaphors, that's the, the famous phrase from the Haymarket uh, martyr August Spees about the ever smoldering subterranean fire, you know, worker discontent, worker um, anger is always there. Um, and so the other thing that's true um, in history is that things can also that seem uh, uh, when things seem at their most um, depressed and uh, unchangeable, things can break loose in a heartbeat and movements can leap forward in short periods of time. And so uh, and organizers need to be ready for those moments. And that was true in the 1930s with the breakthrough of the CIO when the UAW was um, first formed in the midst of the despair of the Great Depression. And what's happening now within the UAW happened because there was a small group, really small <laughs> group of devoted reformers, some of whom have been at this so long, they've long since retired from their um union jobs and uh but are still committed uh UAW retirees they didn't abandon what seemed like a, a hopeless um cause and kept up the agitation for change and so when a government investigation launched under the Trump administration no friend of labor um started looking into the sort of rampant corruption financial corruption dues stealing at the top of the UAW leadership those um reformers were there to push for the notion that the answer to this was not a government takeover, but to allow for the first direct election of union officers in UAW history, let the members decide who should be leading them. Um, so this small group, once the government conceded to that, to this direct election, then continued to organize to promote um, the kind of militant leadership that would really represent a new change within the UAW. And so they, you know, really organized within the rank and file. And through their concerted effort, we saw the election just very recently of um, Sean Fain, who hardly a household word, um, not even, um, uh, you know, his name probably not even known to most, um, to many UAW members before this campaign began. So, again, something like that seems to happen overnight, seems to happen like in a heartbeat, but it, it happened because there were some tireless um, and dedicated uh, uh, folks within the UAW who who didn't give up and who were, were there when the moment um, presented itself. Right. And talk a little bit about the formation of the UADW, the basically progressive caucus uh, or unite all workers for democracy in 2019 and the relationship of that to the election of Sean Fain, who seems to be more, you know, rank and file oriented than um, many of his predecessors. Right. Um, well, and that's the, you know, that is the group, uh, you know, UAWD, the United, uh, Unite All Workers for Democracy, um, the notion of democratizing the UAW central to this cause, as well as, you know, injecting new energy, new, um, militancy within the union. And, 
and rejecting the kind of um, labor management cooperation that had been characteristic of the union before and that had brought the union those those um horrid concessionary contracts. So this was that small group, um, a kind of a, a ragtag band of, you know, workers. Some of, I know, um, Scott Hudelson, who is one of the leaders of UAWD. It comes out of the Ford plant in Chicago that just joined uh, the ranks of those who are now striking last, um, Friday. Um, and, you know, some of these folks go back to the, even as far back as the, as the efforts within what was called the New Directions movement, um, back in the 80s to try to reform the UAW that seemed, you know, that was that was beaten back by the administration caucus and that seemed to 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 utterly um, peter out. But again, you know, those ripples were still there. Uh, they were reaching out to uh, union members across the country, beginning what they called the auto worker caravan, which was a which was just a, a you know, sort of a, a, a committee that that reached out to other workers and tried to carry forward this message of the necessity for democracy and the need for new militancy. And that combined, obviously, with this upsurge in worker activism, generally with um, with an increasing uh, uh, anger among uh, working people in this country about um, the way in which they've been treated the um the disrespect and the um and the inequality that they're subjected to and the and the and the increasingly horrible as you mentioned Amba working conditions that um that factory workers um are subject to along with just about everybody else who works for a living in hospitals or colleges or um uh or department stores wherever um so um but again i guess the the bottom line here is that um this this is a remarkable um example of how a small group of determined reformers committed to a just cause um are now seeing the fruits uh of their labors pay off right and uh, also if you can talk a little bit more about the evolution of the United Auto Workers, this iconic uh, union uh, from the 20th century, uh, the the upper Midwest was ravaged by deindustrialization in the 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, and really onward. Uh, and at the same time, the union expanded into other areas, into higher education, um, uh, representing workers at universities, at nonprofits, at cultural centers. We have eight UAW locals here in New York City, none of which are auto worker locals. Um, can, can you talk about uh, that evolution and how that's uh, uh, driving things as well within UAW? Right. Well, um, I think the uh, you're right that they're sort of coupled. Obviously, when I was um, growing up within the UAW, my father died in 1979. I tell the story in my book. That was the, the, the high point of UAW membership. It had over one and a half million members. So it was, you know, at the height of its membership, the height of its political influence, the height of its strength, even though we were already beginning to see, uh, deindustrialization, um, plants moving either south, um, away from the northern and heavily unionized areas into the, uh, non-union South or out of the country altogether. Um, so we've, we're now at a point where the UAW, uh, went from that high point of 
one and a half million members to about 400,000 today. And a, a quarter of them, I, I believe I read, are now um, graduate students. So, uh, you know, we used to have a union uh, that was almost entirely made up of industrial workers in um, in the auto and aerospace and farm equipment industries. And now it's a union that um, has an increasing number of uh, workers not anywhere near um, a factory setting. So, um, that reflects the change in, uh, in manufa- the manufacturing decline in this country, the fact that unions are um, moving into new areas, um, the fact that there are workers at places like college campuses who are demanding um, to be represented by unions. And so these um, unions like the, the, the UAW and the United Electrical Workers are moving in to, um, to meet that. But it's, um, it's a change uh, that that has come about in large part because of the changes in the economy. But I would note that even though um, it's it, it it's it's great that, that graduate students are organizing. I have a daughter who's a graduate student at the University of Chicago and a new member of the United Electrical Workers. Um, we still have uh, over a million. There are a million workers in the United States engaged in in auto manufacturing. There are only four hundred thousand. UAW members, so and 25% of those are graduate students, so do the math. There are a lot of people engaged in auto manufacturing in this country who still need to be represented by a union. So we need to see uh, the UAW, this new energy that's being brought into the UAW, and I'm I'm, I am certain that they want to do this at the, at this, from this new leadership as well. We want to see, um, uh, those auto workers who are often in the South or in small parts plants. Um, we want to see those, those folks, um, organized and represented by union as well, because if they really need unions to, um, to fight for them, not just for their, for um, wages and benefits, but for um, decent shop floor conditions. Right, right. And so in our last minute here, Tony, um, I just want to turn a little bit back to the past. In 1968, in response to a work speed up at a Chrysler, formerly Dodge automobile plant in Detroit, a black worker, General Gordon Baker Jr., led 4,000 workers out of that plant in a wildcat strike. And so talk, you know, briefly about the black workers' struggle that then ensued and the formation of Dodge Revolutionary Union movement known as Drum and the subsequent formation of the League of Revolutionary Black Workers and how that relates to today, because that was all, sorry, that was all under the auspices of, of the UAW. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and in a minute, it's hard to, it's hard to talk I about. I know, this, I guess, briefly. Just give us yeah, the I mean, I think, well, Let me just, yeah, get to, you know, look at the, the photos and the film clips that we're seeing from picket lines uh, from the UAW strike right now and see how many black workers are involved. And, you know, Detroit, obviously a center of auto production, it still is, um, and a heavily African-American workforce there. Um, the UAW has always, um, and, and you, you know, unions now, more black workers are represented um, you know, percentage wise in unions than white workers. Um, so the UAW and unions have been a way for, um, African Americans in this country to, um, to grapple their way into, uh, that middle class. That being said, 
Black workers, as the last hired in many of these plants, were also relegated to um, the worst jobs. And as the UAW had conceded to management the right to um, to pretty much establish all working conditions, control over how work was done, how fast it was done, it was Black workers in uh, those plants who often bore the brunt of um, this, the, the, the um, increasingly immiserated shop conditions, which is part of what led to um, the uprisings in Detroit um, from black workers who felt that the union was, was not representing them, was not speaking for them. Uh, and they fought to make uh, the UAW um, more inclusive, more representative um, and, you know, and, and, had limited success, but, but, um, part of that long history is part of sort of a union, you know, and I think this current union leadership, I hope, recognizes that one of the important tenets of solidarity is that has to be practiced on a regular basis, that workers have to uh, engage with each other in struggles against management to see who their real enemies are. Um, and unions that only go on strike once every decade. Um, are not, uh, doing right by their own members are not, are not encouraging that kind of practiced solidarity that you, that are essential to strong unions. So, um, I think in terms of, um, what we need to see for, um, to, to combat racism, to confront racism within the working class. We need strong unions, but we need unions that practice that kind of solidarity. Um, so going all the way back to the, the sixties struggles from black workers, you know, black workers, uh, were, were, were deeply involved in the formation of the UAW in the first place. They were involved in the reform efforts. They were involved in trying to make the union itself, um, more representative and, and here, workers on the shop floor, the demands that they had to, to, um, to exert greater control over conditions of work. Um, so I think all of those things, you know, there are many important books and ways for people to read more about this, but, you know, um, I think it's encouraging to see the kind of, um, of, uh, solidarity we're seeing practiced on the picket lines right now. Um, the, the new, uh, generation of graduate students can learn a lot from these union veterans who, um, and I think the union veterans can learn a lot from the new energized young graduate students. So, um, it'll be an interesting progression, um, for this union. Great. Well, thank you so much, Tony Gilpin, a labor historian, for joining us on WBAI with the Independent News Hour. And uh, we'll be looking forward to continue to check in with you as the strike progresses. And thanks and keep up all of your good work. Thanks so much. We're going to take a quick break here and we'll be right back.
There is Power in a Union by Billy Bragg in 1986. This is the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. This radio station is made possible by solely our listeners. That is how we are able to uh, stay independent, uh, provide independent news to you from the studio, from the street, from uh, we have people, you know, uh, reporting internationally. We have people reporting also on very deep issues here, right in the heart of New York City. And uh, again, all of that is made possible by our listeners. Uh, we're unique in that as a station. Uh, some are partially listener sponsored and then, you know, have sort of private interest funds or private sponsors. We are fully listener sponsored. Um, and UAW, UAW, I'm sorry. I've been thinking too much about the unions. <laughs> WBAI is solely funded by our listeners. And so now is the time where if you have never donated to the station and you enjoyed listening to it, or if you haven't donated in a long time and you are able to do so, that you please uh, call in to the station and donate. You can also go online to do so. I'm going to give you that information now. If you want to call, you can call 212-209-2950. Again, that's 212-209-2950. Or you can go online to give the number 2 WBAI. Dot org. That's give the number two WBAI.org. So if you're in the car alone, you can call 212-209-2950. If you have a passenger or if you're just listening on the subway or in your room, you can go online to give the number two WBAI.org and give whatever you can give. 
You know, if you can just give the cost of a couple slices of pizza five bucks, that's great. If you can give 50 bucks, if you have income that you don't, you know, have a purpose for and you can give $500, that's great. If we can have people giving $1,000 to WBAI to keep independent media on the air in New York City, then please, by all means, do so. Another way that you can donate and not have to worry about it for a while is by signing up to become a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 a month, uh, for which you receive various perks, including a free WBAI tote bag. And you you can do so in the name of we would I, I'm asking you to do so in the name of the independent news hour um, to show that we have listeners uh, who love and support uh, this this news hour that we bring to you from the independent New York City's very grassroots leftist radical newspaper since 2000. And so, yeah, help us stay on the air. You can, again, call or go online. You can call 212-209-2950 or go online to give the number to WBAI.org. That's give the number to WBAI.org. And if you're thinking you'll do it later, you might not. So please do, do it, it now. now. If you think someone else is doing it, they might not be. So please and be even the if one. They are. Join them. Absolutely. The more the merrier. Two one two two zero nine two nine five zero, or go online to give number two wbai dot org. You know, and the way our listeners support this radio station is. Uh, closely resembles the way members of a union uh, make their union possible. Union members all paid, and they pay dues. A small percentage of their uh, salary goes to uh, the union to be able to keep the, you know, the uh, administration and uh, structures in place that, uh, you know, that, uh, keep, you know, keeps the whole union rolling and makes it possible to do all the work it does. And here at WBAI, it's the listeners. Uh, essentially a union of listeners supporting this station. They've been doing it for six, you know, you, the listener have been supporting the station for 63 years. Some of you for all of those 63 years, others, uh, you know, uh, maybe a little more recently, but it's really the station is as strong as the support of its listeners. Uh, two, one, two, uh, two, zero, nine, two, nine, five, zero, or give number two. Uh, WBAI, uh, dot org. Ah, and okay. I see our, we do now have our, uh, next guest, uh, in the, in the Zoom. Um, so we're excited about that. Um, uh, we will be speaking with Zoran Mondani shortly, uh, as we now turn, uh, to mass transit, uh, here in New York, subway and bus fares seem to only Go one way, and that's up. But on September 24th, the MTA threw those fare hikes in reverse for riders on five of its bus routes. Uh, those bus routes, one in each borough, are now free for all riders. It's a six-month pilot project to see if free fares will drive up bus ridership and increase the speed of, of the buses whose drivers no longer have to collect fares. What are riders say? Well, let's listen in. The Independent News Hour wanted to find out what New Yorkers were thinking about the free buses so far. We jumped on the B60 from Williamsburg to Canarsie to learn more. My name's Elias Guerra. Do you, do you like taking buses? Yeah, yeah, actually I do. 
Almost like being in a limo. <laughs> you think it's a good thing for them to have the free buses? Yeah, it's a good thing, yeah. I mean, yeah. Get people going where they're going because things are hard these days, you know. So it helped a lot of people, including me. I think it's a great idea, but I still had to pay because I had to transfer. I'm going to use you on the train. Everybody go use the train or I can walk it. But I said, notice this was a free bus. So I said, well, I'm not going to walk all the way home now. So, <laughs> um, I do wish they had it on more lines, definitely. Um, especially, like, the buses that go to, like, the hospitals, the airport, um, by the train stations. I feel like those buses should be free. It's good for the people who actually do pay. So, you know, they won't, like, you know, they could take a break. They need to do it every day on all the buses. I like riding it free. I ain't got to pay nothing. It's a thought. They might lose money, but then in the end, they might gain. Que a veces uno no tiene, tú sabes, para el pasaje completo. Sometimes you just don't have enough for the whole fare. I think they should do like like the B44 Select or something like that, because that's where most people, like, you know, do their transfers. My car just ran out, so I'm on the bus today because it's free. Hey, we put out enough for the one that jumped the turnstiles or sneak in the back, so why not? you definitely paying enough. Because I'm paying, and they get to ride free, and... <laughs> You know, but the fare is too high, so I see why a lot of them do that. So I want to start small and then work your way up. Yeah, intermittently, you know, like say around holidays, you know, that would be a good idea because you get more people riding to go shopping, boost the economy a little bit. All right, that was the Independent News Hour's Elias Guerra. Uh, speaking with uh, passengers on the B60 uh, uh, bus in Brooklyn about uh, now enjoying free fares. Uh, the other buses uh, that have free fares are the Q4 in Queens, the M116 in Manhattan, the the BX18A uh, and 18B in the Bronx, and the S46 and 96 on Staten Island. So if you live any, anywhere a lot near those routes, you might want to uh, enjoy a free ride uh, in the near future. Uh, joining us today to talk more about the free bus fare program is State Assembly Member Zoran Mamdani, a Democratic Socialist who represents Assembly District 36 in Astoria, Queens. Last spring, he led the push in Albany to win funding for this experiment. Zoran Mamdani, welcome to WBAI Radio. Thank you so much for having me, and I'm sorry for my tardiness. No problem. I'm glad you could make it. So, uh, first of all, your reaction to what you just heard from the passengers on the B660 in Brooklyn, which travels from all the way from Williamsburg to Canarsie, uh, giving their reaction to now having free bus service. It's such a lovely moment to hear in the words of the working class people themselves, the the thoughts that we've had for a long time, which is that this pilot program will give people relief at the time when they need it most, and it will engender a response that is not only supportive, but reflective of a larger demand that this pilot be expanded to more lines and more routes and start the beginning of a new way that we think about public transit. Right. And so what did push you um, to push for this program? I think 
you know, personally, I always think of free as something that's relatively rare in New York City. Um, other than, you know, a lot of summer, great summer programming, everything else seems to cost money. <laughs> you know, I, th- I think it's, uh, this has been part of a platform that I have run on since I first ran for office in 2020. The idea that public transit is a public good and therefore there should be no New Yorker that is priced out of the use of that good. And it is something that has also been motivated by the work of so many uh, who have come before me, namely thinking of, you know, TWU um, member and, and, and vice president JP Potafio, the head of the TWU International, John Samuelson. These are many, many different advocates for the idea of bus transit being free transit. And then when you take that overall idea and you look at the statistics of the fact that 20% of low-income New Yorkers are foregoing job opportunities and healthcare appointments because of the cost of the fare, you see a very specific need for this in this immediate moment. And Time and again, when this has been implemented in other municipalities across the country, you've seen positive results in terms of making the bus go faster by reducing the dwell time, results in terms of passengers feeling safer because of a decline in assaults, given the fact that significant number of assaults are tied to fare box collection. And when you take that out entirely, you reduce any and all tensions in the bus. And then the point of of ensuring that now every single rider of those five different routes can take the bus whenever they want, not just when they have 290 in their pocket. Mm. And, and can you elaborate a little bit more uh, on where else uh, free bus service has been implemented in this country? I understand that something like 40 cities and towns either have full or limited uh, free bus service. You know, when I was standing on... 100 East 170th in Grand Concourse in the Bronx at the BX18 A and B bus stop speaking to riders one of them told me I've been waiting for this for so long because I used to live in Westchester and we would wait for the summer every single year because that's when we would get free bus transit. And so we don't even have to look that far to see where free bus transit has been implemented. It's right here in our in our own state, but when I'm thinking of examples the most prominent of them come from Boston, which has trialed two different free bus routes and saw a 23% reduction in dwell time at bus stops because those buses now used all door boarding because they didn't have to focus on fare collection. And because you took away the time of passengers standing in line and fiddling around their bag, looking for their Metro card and the auntie who's trying to count the exact change and put it into the receptacle. And then we've also seen it in Kansas City where in the year after free buses were implemented in Kansas City, there was a 39% drop in assaults on those buses and an 80% increase in passengers feeling safer uh, because of the implementation of that system. So we're seeing these examples in, in many different places. And I think for too long, we have taken this idea of New York exceptionalism and said, actually, things that are working elsewhere could never work here. But we know that's not the truth, that in fact, that which working people benefit from elsewhere is what working people could benefit from here. And it's about time that we're finally getting to the point where we're delivering that those same kinds of results for the very working class New Yorkers that are being priced out of their lives in every other sector. 
Right. And and what was the hardest part of getting other Democrats in the state legislature who, who are not socialists and the governor who is not a socialist on board with this free initiative? No, I think that the, the hardest thing is that this is something that is unprecedented to, to be tried um, here here in New York City. You know, we, we have had a moment in the midst of COVID when um, when buses were free, but to affirmatively do it as opposed to, you know, do so in, in the response to a crisis, it takes a different mindset and it challenges the existing understanding of the MTA, which though we know it's a public authority, we often speak about it in the context of it needs to recoup as much money as it spends, it is losing money, things that we will never say about our education system or about our sanitation department or about the fire department. We understand those as critical um, public goods that that can't really have a price be put on them. But when it comes to public transit, we have looked at it almost as if it is a company that happens to be public. And I think that challenging that and challenging an economic model that states that its funding must rely upon fare increases at a regular level, that is a very difficult thing to question. And what I'm so happy about is the fact that our coalition is charting a new course for public transit, where not only did we reduce the scope of the proposed fare hike, but we simultaneously won $35 million in new service for more than 12, for more than, for, for 12 subway lines across the city, as well as $15 million for this fare free bus pilot. And so we will see, as you have shown in the interviews that you've done for riders in the B60, that this is something that New Yorkers want. And now we have opened the door to it as a possibility is up to us to keep that door open and in fact, start to push it even more. Right. We're, we're coming down to our uh, final uh, minute or so here, unfortunately, but uh, can you uh, uh, describe for us where this goes next when this six month uh, pilot project uh, uh, comes to an end? I know you'll be in Albany next uh, winter and spring uh, duking out around another uh, state budget. Uh, how do you uh, foresee that going? And also, uh, just to stretch a little further here, the city has a fare fares program that provides half price uh, uh, transit fares to uh, low income New Yorkers who who qualify for that. But why do you favor a more universal approach instead of this targeted approach, which is often the way that uh, more conventional uh, Democrats uh, like to go with uh, making social uh, programs available to people? So what I would say is that this pilot, which is anywhere between six to 12 months, the earliest it could end is right in the middle of the budget season, which in some ways is opportune because of the fact that we will have to make a decision next year in Albany as to whether to maintain this program and in fact, whether to also expand this program. And so I think that in these over these next six months, we will get the results. We will hear the anecdotes. We will have interviews such as the ones that you've conducted to understand how is this going and what should its future look like. I very much believe that we must expand this program and follow the, the requests and the demands of the everyday New Yorkers who are using this program. Um, you know, to, to your point and your question about fair fares, fair fares is a means tested program. And as we have seen with means tested programs versus universal. We're down to our last uh, 15 seconds. Oh, I'll be very, very quick. Basically, means-tested programs do not work. Right now, only less than 50% of eligible New Yorkers are even enrolled in fair fares. When you take away the barrier to entry, you allow everyone onto the bus who would benefit from it, you can actually see your intent be realized. Okay. 
uh, Zoran Mondani, Assembly Member from Astoria, Democratic Socialist. Thank you so much for joining us today on WBAI Radio. Very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. All right. Uh, that wraps it up. Thank you to our board operator, Reggie Johnson. And Amba, what's our final uh, song for today? We are going to be listening to Compensation by Nina Simone. Enjoy. Master.